Hello, and welcome to What's Going On, Eyes on Africa and the Caribbean. Join us as we follow social and economic development issues in and around Africa and the Caribbean. If it relates to Africa, the Caribbean, and the people of the African diaspora, we'll talk about it. What's Going On, Eyes on Africa and the Caribbean, wants you to stay connected to the people and places that you love. So join us. We're your hosts. Maranke Ocean Martin and Grace Ocean. Welcome to What's Going On Eyes on Africa and the Caribbean. Today we're talking about the racist immigration policy called the Windrush that led to the deportation of countless people of Caribbean descent from the UK a few years ago. Our guest is Colin Bob Semple. He's here to explain what took place in the UK and why Windrush happened. Colin is an experienced law lecturer, tutor, accredited advocacy trainer. He trained prospective barristers as a senior lecturer at the City Law School, City University in London for over 20 years. He was awarded the Lifetime Award by Black Solicitors Network Group in 2007 for contributions to legal practice and legal education. He also received Teaching Excellence Award by the City Law School, City uh, University London, and was a law revision consultant, and he's going to explain what that is, to the government of Guyana from 2010 to 2012. He's the author of several books, including English Common Law, African Enslavement, and Human Rights in 2012, Race, Jail, and Bail, sounds like a a good one to read there, in 2012, and numerous articles, including English Common Law, Slavery, and Human Rights in 2007. It is a pleasure to have you here uh, with us, Colin. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule. Thank you, Marunke. So let's begin. Before we talk specifically about the Windrush situation, I want to ask you, how long have you been involved in this issue and in what capacity? Well, I've been involved in the issue as an academic commentator. Uh, I have been a lecturer for over 30 years. In the UK. Uh, and, um, And I have found that in between the time when I was in practice, I was in practice as a solicitor for, oh, something like 14, 15 years in the 1970s and 80s. Um, Part of that time, I was also a lecturer, and then I went into full-time lecturing in 1989. Mm -hmm. So since then, um, 1989 to now, um, consider that length of time, you know, we're talking about 32 years, aren't we? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I have been lecturing. One of my subjects, uh, when I lectured in 2012, 2013, uh, was immigration and asylum law. When I was in practice, I did some immigration cases. Okay. So my interest has been in that field for several years. I I also must express a personal interest Mm -hmm. in that I am a member of what's called the Windrush Generation, having come to England from what was then British Guyana in 1960. Um, My mother had preceded me. She came uh, to the UK in 1957. Of course, she was uh, a member of the Windrush generation as well. Because the Windrush generation, I must explain, What is the Windrush generation? The Windrush generation is the generation of people that came to the UK from mainly the Caribbean in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. The Windrush was the name of a ship, a ship which arrived in the UK in 1948. The Windrush, or the Empire Windrush, as it was known, as it was called, Mm -hmm. was originally a German ship. It was called the MV Monterosa. It was originally a German ship which was used by Nazi Germany to ship Norwegian Jews to their deaths in concentration camps in Auschwitz-Birkenau in World War II. Wow, that's a, so the Windrush has been associated with some evil doings for a while then. That's pretty significant. Very sinister. It has a very sinister history. Do do we know why they used that particular vessel to to bring in people from the Caribbean? Was it... Do we know anymore? Well, they used that particular vessel... um, uh, which they renamed the HMT Empire Windrush. Mm-hmm. Uh, it after the war, it was used as as an as a British ship, as a troop ship. It carried troops. It transported troops mm-hmm. before it started to transport civilians after the war. 
So that's the that's the history as far as I'm aware uh, of the ship itself. Mm. Uh, on the 21st of June, 1948, HMT Empire Windrush docked uh, at Tilbury uh, in the UK. Mm -hmm. Passengers disembarked the next day, the 22nd of June, 1948. A number of the passengers happened to have traveled from the Caribbean. Uh, many Jamaicans, but a number from other Caribbean countries, which were all colonies at that time. Right. So those who came in, um, many of them were former service men and women who had aided Great Britain in the war effort. Right. You had a number of West Indian or Caribbean volunteers who had volunteered uh, to serve in the armed forces. Uh, they came to England in large numbers. I had two uncles that came uh, to the UK during the war. Uh, and um, uh, both served in the Royal Air Force. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of Guyanese did that. But not, not only Guyanese, of course. Um, uh, there were probably more Jamaicans than Guyanese and, and, and other parts of the Caribbean. But there were a number from all over the uh, what is now known as the Caricom region. Mm -hmm. Also from Africa, Asia, India, uh, and other parts of the Commonwealth. So this vessel, the Windrush, then went through the Caribbean regions and other places, picking up people for what, to come and live in Britain, or is it for work? Oftentimes you hear that they went to Britain as laborers. Yes. Those who came in on the Windrush mm -hmm. in 1948, and right. we'll confine ourselves to 1948 because okay. that was the year okay. uh, 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 that's associated with the Empire Windrush. I see. There, it wasn't the only ship. There were other ships mm -hmm. that came in afterwards. Um, but sticking with the Windrush for the time being, a number of the passengers that came in on that historic trip in 1948 were, as I say, ex service men and women mm -hmm. who had returned to the Caribbean and were now returning to England for work okay, and to further their careers. Some came to study, some came to work, and mostly came to work. And that was the nature of 
the movement of people from the Caribbean, um, I, I must also say this, that the UK sent agents to the Caribbean to recruit people to come to England to work to rebuild the country after the devastation of the Second World War. Right, that's, that's what I was getting to, that they were brought in to help to rebuild England. Yes, they were invited. A no, were number inv of people were invited. That's right. Okay. M most of them didn't just take it upon themselves to go to England. Um, some did. Some said, I'm going to the mother country. Right. But a, a, a number of uh, people who had come during the war years um, went back to their hometowns mm -hmm. uh, and, and said, England is looking for workers. Mm -hmm. There are jobs there. There are opportunities mm -hmm. in the UK for us. And government agents, UK government agents, actually encouraged the flow of passengers. As you said, uh, they recruited them. They recruited them. Yeah. I, I, I'll give you an example. Barbados in particular. Mm-hmm accounted for large numbers of workers in London transport throughout the 60s and 70s. Large numbers of Barbadians came to the UK, were recruited by various organizations and companies, uh, and went to work uh, on London Transport, British Rail, uh, and other right. um, uh, organizations. The underground, um, the buses, and everything else. Yes. Also, another example can be given for nurses. The NHS, mm -hmm. the National Health Service, relied a lot on Irish and Caribbean nurses okay. from the 50s, 60s, and 70s to come and work in the hospital service. Right. So those are two examples I can think of. Um, th there were more, but, but I give those two big examples of areas uh, in which Caribbean people made a, a distinct contribution. And in many cases, I mean, I've, I've heard some of the, the nurses recently in another campaign have indicated that without the nurses from the Caribbean, Britain's health system would not be what it is today. Well, I've heard that argument. I've heard that argument, and um, I, ha I have no doubt that there's some force in that. Mm -hmm. 
All right? Now, another point I must mention before I come on to deal with the Windrush hostile environment. What was the status of the people who came? You might ask. The status of those who came from the Caribbean, who came to work and live in England, some of them said, we're going to England for five years. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to save up, send money back home to our families, uh, and then return after five years. Most of them didn't do that. They stayed on. <laughs> stayed on for, you know, 40, 50, 60 years uh, and more. However, their status at that time, in 1948... Their status was that of British subjects. Okay. Citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies. That was my status when I um, came to London. Mm -hmm. That was my mother's status. We were British colonial subjects. And we had a right of freedom of movement into the UK, similar to the uh, rights of freedom of movement for EU citizens. Before Brexit, European Union citizens had a right to come to the UK to live and work in the UK. Mm -hmm. They had freedom of movement. So did they have oh. British passports? Uh, they, who have British passports? The folks who came in on the Windrush in 48 and so. You said they were British subjects. So Yes, they... they had British colonial passports. Got you. Um, which were, at that time, the equivalent of a British passport issued in the UK. There is no... There was no distinction, save and except um, the passport said British passport, British Guyana in my case, mm -hmm. British passport, Jamaica, British passport, Trinidad and Tobago, British passport, Barbados, and so on. Mm -hmm. But they were all colonies under a governor of the United Kingdom. And... and the, the passports that were issued in the Caribbean were issued through the auspices of the governor. Uh, and the passports themselves gave the holders rights of freedom uh, of movement into the UK without let or hindrance. Those are the words um, that, that were printed in the passport. Okay. Without let or hindrance to enter the United Kingdom. Right. All right. So that's the basic legal principle under the English common law. 
However, in 1948, I, I, I shouldn't say however, in 1948, the British Nationality Act was passed. And that act confirmed what was the position under the English common law that colonial citizens, i.e. British subjects, mm -hmm. citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies, mm -hmm. could freely enter the United Kingdom. Okay, so they so, were still protected under this They were this still new protected. Act. Yes. They were, they, were, they were now protected, um, not by mere common law, that was built up and decided by judges, but by legislation, mm -hmm. by the act. Right. So from 1948 onwards, well, up to 1962, <laughs> from 1948 up to 1962, uh, people were free to come and go from any part of the Commonwealth. So not just... Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, um, uh, and so on, but colonials from the Caribbean and Africa, you know, Ghana, Nigeria, uh, and so on, could enter freely because they were all British subjects. You you recall that Britain had colonies all over the world. Yes. You know, two-thirds of the map of the, of, the, of the earth was painted in reddish pink. Territories belonging to... The British Empire. The British... Ah, that's it. The, Brit, the British Empire. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the British Empire. And, and there you have it, you see. Now, the problem was this. In the 1960s, particularly, more than the 1950s, there were various ships that came in after the Windrush mm -hmm. from the Caribbean um, territories. In 1961, um, I was looking at some figures the other day. 66,000 people entered the UK from the Caribbean territories. That was in 1961. Okay. In the same year, 60,000 arrived from the Indian subcontinent. Okay. So you have large numbers now coming in in the early 1960s from the Caribbean and from India, Pakistan, um, what's now Bangladesh, and, uh, and so on. So... Uh, Numbers became a concern. Right. 
uh, of a number of people. So they started and, seeing all these people, brown skinned people, entering. Yes, dark, dark brown. Skinned, yes. Dark, dark, dark brown. Yes. <laughs> people. And it scared them. Yes. Black people. This 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 um so called so called influx yes. of what was then called colored colored colored. So in 1962, the government passed the Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which was intended to stem the flow of entrance from the Caribbean in particular. Because mm -hmm. there's the way the largest numbers were coming in right. from the West Indies or Caribbean. So the 1962 Act was designed to control that immigration, to control the numbers coming in. To control the influx of the coloreds, the black people. Right. Right. However, although it, it had quite some effect on numbers from the Caribbean, it didn't stem the flow from the Indian subcontinent. Interesting. And and why is that? If this act is in place, was it written specifically for the West Indians? Wouldn't uh, it catch? I, wouldn't it catch everybody? I I don't think it did. Um, it didn't catch East African Asians. It didn't catch East African Asians because they had what were, what were called British Overseas Passports. Okay. They were citizens uh, of the United Kingdom and Colonies. The C-U-K-C's. So it, it didn't stem the flow from the Indian subcontinent and the East African Asians. So do you think that, that was coming in? Do you think that was deliberate? I I don't think that was deliberate. Um, in fairness. Uh, I, I think it was incidental. Okay. It was incidental in this sense. Um, you may recall that Idi Amin. Oh, I do recall. <laughs> in Uganda, um, as part of the Africanization policy, had said, and, and this also occurred to some extent in uh, Kenya. Uh, and Tanzania, the, the East African um, territories, where a number of people from the Indian subcontinent 
had been residing. Amin said, look, you can take our citizenship. As part of my policy, you can become citizens of Uganda. Mm -hmm. And you have to take Ugandan passports. A number of the uh, Asians who live there said, no, we prefer to keep our United Kingdom and colonies passports. Because a number of them apparently banked in England and had some contact with England. Yes. And chose England in preference to taking up Uganda, Tanzanian, um, Zambian, uh, Kenyan passports um, and citizenship. So that, that was, in a nutshell, the history of the matter, as far as I'm aware. Can I just ask you a hot second, though, going back a little bit to the Idi Amin situation. The, so the British were, if I remember correctly, when Idi Amin threw out the East African Asians by force, Britain was forced to accept them, but it, there was a, a great deal of reluctance. And it, it was based on the fact that they essentially had British passports was why they had to let them in. Well, not without a fight, you see, because uh, the UK then said in 1968, after Enoch Powell made his very explosive speech of the river Tiber foaming with blood. And he talked about uh, very derogatory, in very derogatory terms, about grinning piccaninnies in our streets. In other words, send them back. Mm -hmm. Indeed, Powell's speech signaled a pivotal moment for the United Kingdom. Let's listen to a brief excerpt of that infamous speech which the then Shadow Cabinet member, Enoch Powell, delivered to a group of conservatives in April 1968. It almost passes to those whom the gods wish to destroy alone. I've always aspired to be heard and understood by everybody. I, I've little patience with a political appeal. Uh, which is a sectional appeal. Enoch Powell was well aware of the impact his speech would have. He sent advance copies to ITV Central, then ATV, and to his local paper, the Wolverhampton Express and Star, telling its editor, This speech will fizz like a rocket, but whereas all rockets fall to earth, this one is going to stay up. In this country, in 15 or 20 years' time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. 
He was speaking at a Birmingham hotel to an invited audience of Conservative supporters, but he knew his words would ring out to a far wider audience. It almost passes belief that at this moment, 20 to 30 additional immigrant children are arriving from overseas in Wolverhampton alone every week. And that means 15 or 20 additional families a decade or so hence. Those whom the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. We must be mad. But the cameras in 1968 didn't capture the following words. Enoch Powell said, As I look ahead, I am filled with foreboding. Like the Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. The next day, Enoch Powell was sacked from the Conservative shadow cabinet by Ted Heath. That was a report by ITV News on Enoch Powell's speech called Rivers of Blood, 50 Years On, setting the scene in 1968. These dark brown skin and black people, you see, in 1968, we have the Commonwealth Immigrants Act, the second Commonwealth Immigrants Act which was now designed to stem the flow of the East African Asian numbers coming in with their British overseas passports. Right? Right. The East African Asians actually took a case to the European Commission and challenged the law. And it was said that it was unfair to have excluded people who had British passports. Ah. Yeah, that's the history of it. There's an East African Asians case that went to the European Commission. Uh, And they then had to let them in. Interesting. Yes. So so that's um, all part of the general picture that, that occurred. So now let's talk about Windrush. You called it the, the hostile Windrush environment. So how did, how, whose idea was that? And where did it, I mean, now you've given us a wonderful background and an understanding but what changed in the law that allowed this to happen all right let me mention another act before i i I tell you more about the uh, windrush hostile environment okay in 1971 an Immigration Act was passed. In that act, which still forms the basis of current immigration legislation, Mm -hmm. 
upon which the Windrush situation depends, that act talked about ancestral links for patriots. The act mentioned the word patriots in its original form. That that term has gone now. Mm -hmm. That it was amended out of the act. But originally, when the act was passed, they talked about patriots. And who were patriots? Patriots were said to be persons in the Commonwealth who could prove an ancestral link to the United Kingdom. So if one's father or grandfather um, was English or British, mm -hmm. you're in. You're part of British nationality. You're a patriot. In other words, you are a member of the fatherland, patria. Uh -huh. You see? So that was, that was said to be totally racist. Of course. Because now and, they're looking for a blood connection. Yes, ancestral links. So that was, um, that was part of it. So I mentioned that uh, in the Immigration Act of 1971. Um, as I said, it's been amended, but it still forms the basis of uh, British immigration law. Um, yeah, UK immigration law. Now to explain what we mean by the hostile environment uh, in the Windrush in inverted commas legislation. We have two acts. In 2014, the first one was in 2014. And the second one uh, was in 2016, which uh, amended the 2014 Act. So it's essentially, the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Acts amended the 1971 Immigration Act, to which I referred mm -hmm. a few minutes ago. What were the key provisions in this new act, the hostile environment, which was introduced by the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, in about, in about 2012 or 2013. Theresa May, who was then the Home Secretary, who later became the Prime Minister, of course. But while she was Home Secretary, she introduced what was said to be a hostile environment for what were called illegal immigrants. Hmm. She said, if you are an illegal immigrant... You will not 
be allowed to stay in this country. Right. What was the definition of an illegal immigrant? Aha. The definition of an illegal immigrant was anyone who could not prove, and the onus was on the person who was alleged to be illegal, to prove that he or she had entered the UK legally. But not only that, they had to show documentation of entry or documentation showing that they had indefinite leave to remain in the UK and so on. In other words, they had to show papers. So any police officer, any official of the home office could approach someone and say, papers please, show me that you have a right to live and work in the UK. But isn't that rational? I mean, that that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're trying to keep out illegal immigrants, you want to make sure that everyone who doesn't have ancestral links can prove that they have entered legally and have documentation. What, why is that a problem? The problem arose, particularly in the case of Caribbean nationals. When a number of them arrived in the UK in the 40s, 50s, 60s, up to the 1970s, after 1973. Mm-hmm. While the countries were colonies, they had a right to enter, as I said, under the British Nationality Act uh, and so on. But many of them came in as children, and that's where the problem arose. They came in as children and didn't have their own passports. They came in on their parents' or relatives' passports. Right. I see. Relatives have since died. Mm -hmm. Those children who came in, went to school, um, started work, went to work, worked for years. And they have families and... Pay their taxes, have families, have their own children, born in in the UK, uh, and so on. But they could not show any paperwork that they had entered legally. So they were defined as illegal. Oh my goodness, I see. Unless they could prove otherwise. And that's where the problem arose. Some had also come in on their own passports, Mm -hmm. but lost their passports. 
mislaid their passports and could not prove their status. Notwithstanding the fact that they had worked uh, for several years, paid their taxes uh, and, and all their dues, uh, and led a lawful life, they still came into the criminal category of an illegal immigrant subject to removal. And removal meant that the Home Secretary could send around removal vans uh, and or her offices, the Home Office personnel, could arrest those individuals who couldn't show their documents, put them into detention, and then put them on a flight. Wow. Back to... Jamaica, Grenada, Barbados. I'll give you some examples uh, of persons who died. I mean, there are several examples, but but I'll concentrate on uh, four examples of persons who died. Um, In the process of being deported or as a result of being deported? uh, As a result of the stress that they suffered okay. um, in the process. I'll tell you about those um, in a few moments. Now, what was the consequence of the implementation of the 2014 and 2016 Acts? When one goes for employment, you have to show a passport to prove that you have got a right to live and work in the UK. When you go for housing for a local authority, one is asked to produce evidence of your, your right to live and work in the UK. Healthcare. You are not entitled to free healthcare. Um, if you're not a UK resident. Driving licenses. You can't obtain a driving license unless you can prove that you have a right to live and work in the UK. Pensions and other benefits you're not entitled to unless you can prove. You see, it affects so many different areas. It totally um, turned their lives upside down. I mean, it, it just uh, uh, kind of, they pulled the rug from under them. Yes, since the, since the 2014 Act, that has been the case. Prior to the 2014 Act, there was no legislation that was so onerous that meant that uh, people could be just picked up and if they didn't have papers, thrown out of the country. Or um, uh, instead of being uh, removed, they, they could be given the opportunity to leave voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And said, well, you know, we, we, we won't um, deport you or we won't remove you. We won't put you on a plane. 
if you'll get on a plane yourself and go. But, but, but let me ask you, if they have been living and working and paying their taxes, yes. wouldn't it make sense that the government, if they didn't have a passport, couldn't they track the... the uh, national insurance. National insurance. Couldn't they track people's origins from, from those official documents? I mean, surely they have official documents that traces their stay or their existence in the UK from a certain point to a certain point? Well, uh, after the furor that arose, mm -hmm. when the cases were publicized, um, the government decided to issue what's called a biometric card. Um, if uh, people could show um, that they had lived and worked lawfully in the UK for so many years, um, but they had to sh they had to go back sometimes twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years to prove th that that they had a right to live and work in the UK. You see, the problem was the initial entry. Right. Um, a lot of those records were destroyed. Okay. I mean, there's some records in the National Archives um, that I've seen, you know, some of the um, ships that came in, but those records are incomplete. You know, what about all the records of all the flights that came in as well? You see? Um, because I'm, I'm saying if you were educated in Britain, you have school records that says you went to preschool or primary school or whatever from this time to, to this time. Were wonderful. They, were they That's not wonderful. That's wonderful. But it still does not prove that when you entered the UK as a child, that you had a right I see. to enter. That's... It doesn't prove that you lawfully entered. You could have come in as a stowaway. Who knows? So when you talk about hostile environment, this was a blanket policy that just caught any and everyone. Yes. And it was intended the... to catch as many as possible. Yes. I, I do not say and I do not argue that it was meant to target Caribbean people per se, mm -hmm. um, or, or even black people um, generally. But its effect was that these are the very people that suffered. Most of the people who suffered were from Jamaica and other parts of the Caribbean, and some from Nigeria and Ghana. Hmm. And some from other places too. Uh, I've seen cases of Canadians who fell into the net. So, um, you know, those exceptions um, actually indicate to me, to my mind, mm -hmm that it, it wasn't designed to 
discriminate against black people. But its effect was that black and dark brown people were most devastated by the operation of the hostile environment. And what is more, Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, added insult to injury by sending removal vans around to certain boroughs where there were large populations of Commonwealth citizens, mm-hmm. i.e. black people. So Those she- vans mm-hmm. said... Go home. Wow. If you are illegal, go home. Otherwise, you'll be arrested, deported, removed, and so on. So there was an element of intimidation. Well, it it was... uh, Well, it's arguable that it was it was meant uh, as far as i'm aware mm-hmm. it was meant to scare off if you call it intimidation i i don't know but it was meant to send a message to any illegal immigrants and i'm not saying they weren't any mm-hmm. of course they were to any illegal immigrants that they would not be entertained and that if they're caught and when they're caught they'd be detained and then deported or removed from the UK so so that was the um, that was the position so so can i ask you what is it that the east african asians have that allowed them to prove their status that, that allow them to prove their right to be in the country, because Theresa May's policy uh, yes. didn't didn't affect them to the same extent as it did the Windrush generation. No, because they had the, they were able to show their passports. I see. So they were granted passports. They had passports. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, they had passports that were issued. In uh, uh, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia, and so on. Okay. So they they, they were able to produce their passports. A, a, a number of Caribbean people mm-hmm. who might not have had their original passports had registered as British citizens. Okay. I registered as a British citizen in the 1960s. When that's, that's the naturalization process, right? Yes. Okay. More, more or less, yes. I registered as a British citizen. So I have paperwork that shows that, you know, apart from my passport, which I still have, but if I'd lost my passport, if I'd lost my original passport and I couldn't prove that, that I had entered 
the UK lawfully. Mm -hmm. I could show that I registered as a British citizen. And several Caribbean people registered. But the unfortunate aspect of the situation is that uh, a number of those who were caught up in the hostile environment net did not register or or were not aware that they had to register. They thought, well, I've been here since I was um, was a child. Yes. And, you know, I, I don't need to register. You know, I'm I'm effectively a British citizen. You see? Right. And, and that was the um, thinking among a number of Caribbean people. And I'm sad to say it's it still is, unfortunately. I mean, even here in the U.S., we still have folks who have not changed their citizenship. No. Yes. Yes. And you, you see that, that that's another aspect. Uh, you, you t- talking about that. Um, when a number of the Caribbean countries became independent, there was this sense of pride in their independence. Right. Uh, and some, I, I know this from some of my friends who had come from Guyana and other parts of the Caribbean, when their countries became independent, they didn't register as British citizens. They took the passports of their countries. Yeah. So Guyana, for example, Jamaica, Trinidad, and so on. But but a number of them, them those who were lawyers, those who qualified with, with me and so on as lawyers, said, well, well, we're not going to stay in England. Um, We're going to return to our country. So um, we're going to get um, Caribbean passports. And that's what some people did. I decided that I was going to register because I I was going to continue residing in England. And I wanted to be, you know, free to be able to go to Guyana and other parts of the Caribbean and elsewhere in the world and return to England without having any hassle. But that was that was my choice, you see. I, I see that as being an issue, a, a problem in the sense, and you can't blame people because generally the idea is, hey, this is where I'm from, and I'm only going to be here for a few years. And then we're yes. going to go home, we're going to build a house, whether it's in Jamaica or Guyana or wherever, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. So there's always this connection to the original... The homeland. Homeland. There's always yes. this connection to the homeland, and I hear it even till today. I mean, you hear Africans say it. I'm here to go to school, get an education, blah, 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 and then yes. we're going back. 20 years later, they're still here. That's right. And they haven't changed their status. So listening to this, is it, it's, it's very sad that this is what transpired. And I have to 
ask you, when the 2014 Immigration Act and the 2016 Immigration Act went into effect, was there any effort to educate the public about the implications of of this? Because I don't remember reading anything either about this immigration change or even the, the hostile environment policy coming into effect. There was very little media coverage of this entire thing. That is true. And I, I must give you an example. In my case, I remember once when I was uh, giving a lecture, I was delivering a lecture, and the administrator of the college where I was working had told me, uh, be prepared for home office officials coming into your class to to check on the students. My goodness. And I thought, what? Home office? She said, yes, they'll be coming in and you have to grant them access to check on the students' registers, their names, and etc. They are checking up on the students. So that was around 2014, 2015, when the act was first brought into force. Mm -hmm. And that, that brought home to me the significance of that legislation. You've been listening to part one of What's Going On? Eyes on Africa and the Caribbean with our special guest, Colin Bob Semple, explaining what was going on when the British government decided to disown thousands of its black citizens that it had welcomed in 1948 in what was called the Windrush Hostile Environment Policy. So we hope you'll come back for part two when Colin Bob Semple explains just how Theresa May's hostile environment policy on Britain's Black population devastated that community. Please join us again for What's Going On, Eyes on Africa and the Caribbean. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Africa Caribbean and on our website, eyesonafricacaribbean.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.